good morning. <laughs> Thank you for greeting one another. My name is Lisa Sin, and I've been coming to Mosaic for 15 years now, and I'm glad to call this church my home. Today, we'll be reading Luke 20, 19 through 40. So I invite you to stand and listen as I do. Let's begin. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they, because they knew he had spoken this parable against him, but they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance to the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw this through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a woman with no, but with no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The, for, the first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For him, all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Oh, thank you, Lisa. Good morning. Hey, uh, my name's Tim. I'm the lead pastor here at Mosaic. It is 
Really good to be with you here in this room on this beautiful sunny day. If you're watching online or watching it at a different time, thank you so much just for joining in and being a part of what God's doing in and through us here. Um, it is, it's really good to be together. I want to uh, just give you a kind of an update. We, uh, Lisa just read a, a text in the book of Luke, and we have been, as a church, we've been walking through the book of Luke for uh, about a year and a half now. It's a, it's a really long time, coming up on two years, actually. And uh, the reason that we're doing that is that we believe um, that God has not only created us, but continues to form us and shape us and transform us through the truth that is in Scripture, that God speaks to us through the Bible. And so uh, we take this very seriously. Um, we believe that God is not only alive and active in the world today, but that he's speaking to us through the gift of his word and its truth. And so we've just taken the time to walk slowly through it. It has been a long time uh, and uh, it has been hopefully really good. Um, today, uh, we're going to teach on the passage in Luke that we, we just heard. Um, next week, we are uh, doing a special Sunday. It's our summer kickoff. It's going to be a blast. I hope you're here. Uh, I hope you invite friends, uh, family to be here, a part of it. We're going to look back over the last year, look forward into the next year, celebrate what God has done and is doing, and then just have a lot of fun as well. We've got a a Pips cart that's got like donuts and chai tea and then some inflatables. And again, I said this last week, but I've, the, 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 the legal phrase that I've heard, I think it's legal, is for kids of all ages, which you can translate into uh, adults can jump on this stuff as well. So there's going to be inflatables there. It's going to be a fun day. So please be here. Um, but that kind of taken a one-off from Luke. And then the following week is Father's Day. And on Father's Day, we're going to start a summer series that will not be in Luke. Um, that will be mostly in the Old Testament, and we're calling it God Saves. As we've been in Luke, we've been looking closely at who Jesus is, what he teaches, what he's done, what he calls us to, um, and we're going to take a pause in the book of Luke. We've only got a little bit left in Luke, and for this summer, we're going to walk through some of the greatest stories of the God of the universe showing up and working, that God works in supernatural ways, ways way beyond what we can understand, ways that we need him to work that he shows up and he saves and he redeems and rescues. And so we're gonna be looking at the Old Testament of some of the greatest stories uh, that have ever been told um, throughout the summer. And we've got some friends that are coming in uh, to kind of help with that as well. So uh, some of you may know and remember John Chang. Good to see you. Um, John's gonna speak a couple times this summer. John planted a church out of Mosaic 12, 12, 13 years ago. So like, like a long time. Um, so John's helped out with teaching from uh, time and again here, and he's going to speak a couple times this summer. Avery, who was here a couple weeks ago, is going to be in it as well. So it's just going to be a great summer. God saves how God shows up and works and rescues, and we need him to do that today in our lives as well. So that's kind of where we're headed the next, uh, the next couple weeks and, and through the summer. Would you do this with me? Would you close your eyes and just take a deep breath, and let's pray together as we, as we open up God's word this morning together. God, you are present and powerful and alive and active. You're here. God, as we, as we sang, and, and Maya mentioned that, that that second song that we sang this morning is, is fun, and, it, and it's fun because it, it lifts our spirits to who you are, that you are working. And the line that caught my attention as we were singing is that for fear cannot survive when we praise you. And I'm aware that some of us are struggling with, with fear and to sing and to declare a, a line like that and to believe that it's true takes, takes some faith. And so I, I ask that in this moment right now, God, you would grow our faith 
that you would expand our capacity, willingness, and ability to, to trust you and believe you. But the truth is that as we turn our attention to you, you have this way of working where you begin to reduce and minimize and squeeze out the space that we have for fear. So I ask that you would do that right now in, in our midst. That you're a God who not just created us and works in powerful ways, but that you see each and every one of us. That you know who we are and what's going on and that you care and that you love us. And so Holy Spirit, we invite you to be working and active and we also say that we need you to be, we need you to comfort us, we need you to convict us, we need you to work and to move and to change us. And so have free reign in this space and in our minds and in our hearts this morning. Jesus, as we've listened to your words and your voice, as we've followed your story and your experiences throughout the book of Luke for some time now, would you even again this morning teach us something new remind us of something that we've known and change us in some way. We declare you as alive and active, as wonderful and as real, and as loving. Would you work right now and teach us and lead us? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So uh, I want to tell you about three TV shows that are, are starting uh, this month, June. Uh, and you maybe already know about these or you may not care one bit which is fine. Uh, American Ninja Warrior. <laughs> Season 15, if you care, premieres tomorrow. Um, American Ninja Warrior is a, like a, a reality TV show competition game show thing where, you, where, where people compete. Um, they apply to get in and then they come and they go through these obstacle courses that are like um, just... Like, we could all do them, probably. But, they, I mean, they, like, they, they you, just these obstacles, of course, in the time and competition, they get ranked, and then they, they win, and um, their life is forever better. That American Ninja Warrior. The second one is uh, 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 Stars on Mars. Has anyone heard of this? Forget I told you about it. It's, I can't believe it's a real thing. It is uh, hosted by William Shatner, which what I learned is that he's alive. So that's... Uh, <laughs> He was the star actor in the original, original uh, Star Trek, right? Okay. And he's, he's 127 years old. He is still alive. And he's hosting this show. And it's, uh, it's a simulation show, competition simulation show on uh, like what it's like to live on Mars. So that's, a, that's happening. I don't think we can stop it. I think it's, it's going to happen. The third show is this. I, I hope I pronounced this right. Mori Mato's Sushi Master. It's, it, it's, a, it's like an expert sushi chef and is hosting this competition where people learn how to select the fish, um, do things to the fish, prepare it, and, like, and then in all different settings, like, a, like, a, like the highest end sushi setting. And then like, I don't think this is lower end. I hope it's not because I frequent it, but the the um, ones that, that, that go around on the, the, the racetrack, you know, thing and the um, whatever that's called. Um, so you compete with that. So these are three shows that are like they're reality TV shows and they're, they're competition and you, you compete. And, and the, the thinking behind it, uh, and these have been going on for, for years and years. Uh, obviously, American Ninja Warrior was not the first one. It's in its 15th season. Like there's a whole other genre of these that I'm not going to acknowledge exist. And I think you know the kind I'm talking about. 
Um, I'm not even going to say it. So there's a whole other genre. But these are like competition ones. And the, the, the thinking behind it is if you can get um, viewers to, to watch it and, and meet the contestants, they'll begin rooting for the contestants and kind of follow it and get into it. And they'll maybe pick one and that one doesn't perform well. So they move to another one. And then that one doesn't, you know, they pick them and, and people are interested in these kinds of things. And maybe you are. And that's, that's great. There's no, there's no judgment nor any affirmation. If you care about those kinds of shows, or if you decide to watch them um, tomorrow or a couple weeks when, when they all start. But those are reality TV shows, and that's kind of the thinking uh, behind it, the, the, the competition and, and who wins. Um, these tap into part of who we are as, as human beings. We, we care. Um, we, we, we want to read ourselves into the shows. Oh, I wouldn't have made that play, or I wouldn't have done that. I could have figured that out. Um, that guy couldn't jump very far. That guy could only do 600 pull-ups on that thing on Ninja Warrior. I think I could do like 800 or 900. Like we, we put ourselves into it and we, we kind of become a part of it and assess and compete and, and all that kind of thing. That's not a new thing. That's just part of being human. And so while the medium, the media way of producing that and showing it is, is newer, over the course of human history, this is not a, a new thing. This has been happening in some form uh, or, or way forever, as long as there's been humans. I think this is what Jesus was participating in during Holy Week. I think this is what was going on with Jesus during the Passion Week. I think episode one was him coming in and being introduced. And he comes into Jerusalem, as we've read in Luke, he comes into Jerusalem and he's introduced and people love him. And so they throw down palm branches and their jackets and Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he's the favorite. He's going to win. And then in episode two, he does something unexpected. He starts teaching and saying things and people are like, I don't know that I'm for this contestant. I want to be for another one. And then the next episode, what he does is he turns over the tables in the temple and he loses a whole other fan base. And they're like, I'm not with him anymore. Like, why did he just do that? In our episode today, we're looking at Jesus and there's all these viewers, there's all these followers, there's all these people watching and the, the rankings have kind of changed. And see, for, for some of us, uh, we, we hear the story of Jesus, we read the story of Jesus, um, or maybe you're just getting introduced to Jesus and you think that he's, he's absolutely like unique and there's no one else like him. And that is true. On this side of history, we know that, we can see that. But in the moment, he actually wasn't that unique. In the moment, he was one of a number of people who had said, I'm the Messiah. I'm the savior that's going to come. And so people would follow them and then they would get killed and buried and not rise again. And they'd go, nah, that guy wasn't it. And so Jesus is another one in a long line of people who claimed that they were the Messiah. And so they're following him and we come to episode four or five today, this morning, as we read this text together. And Jesus has some competitors. And we're gonna see two competitors, two adversaries that come at Jesus. The first one is like a, a strategic, well-planned adversary, competitor. The first one that comes to Jesus is like the, uh, if you've ever watched American Ninja Warrior, where they do the background story, the first, the first one that comes at Jesus is like the guy who is like 20, and if just first glance, you look at him and he looks like uh, he spends all his time in the climbing gym. You know, he's got, he's got a membership and he can climb up that wall and, and do the mountain climbing stuff, just like super rock climbing, really like easy skilled. And then the only other thing he does in his life is, is excel at math. Like 
he's that guy. Like that's, that's the only two things he does. And, and then you see his background story and sure enough, that's what he does. He dedicates himself. He's really good at math and he's really good at, at climbing the walls in the gym. And then he gets up and he knows exactly, he's kind of measured out and knows exactly where he's gonna step and jump and do pull-ups until you fall asleep. And I mean, he can do all of it. He's well-planned, he's well-thought-out. The second competitor that comes at Jesus in our text today is the overconfident one. He's the guy that is not into math or climbing. He just lifts all day long. And maybe he only does curls all day long. But he's way yoked and big, and he just shows up to the competition like, you all are toast, I'm gonna conquer all of you. I might not even fully wake up for this. I'll probably wear pants, I'll probably wear jeans. That guy. He has two people that come at him. And Jesus' response is to engage him in such a way. So here's what I'd like to, for us to do together this morning. Is to, is to listen to these competitions with Jesus. Listen to these people that come and compete with Jesus. And ask yourself if you've ever been one of those two. Or if you're one of those two today. So here's, here's the first one. It's the, uh, Jesus just got done telling a parable and teaching. And so he's lost some followers. Uh, and so the, the, the teachers of the law and the chief priests have kind of said, okay, we got to come at him and figure this out. And so it says this in verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this teaching or this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. So keeping a close eye, close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the, the religious leaders, uh, the chief priests, the teachers of the law did not like Jesus. They didn't like that he was claiming to be the Messiah. They didn't like that he was a, a rabbi that was gaining followers. They didn't like what he was teaching and how he was challenging them. And so they, they got some guys who could be strategic and well-planned and measured out. And they said, we're gonna slide you into the crowd and then you're gonna go in there and you're gonna, you're gonna ask Jesus a question and it's gonna trap him and he's gonna get caught. And what's gonna happen then is we're gonna be able to hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor who is synced up with Rome. Rome was ruling Israel at the time. So these Jewish leaders, we're gonna hand Jesus over, get him trapped and hand him over to the power and authority of the governor and they would, he'd be done. So that's their plan, that's what they're thinking. So the spies questioned him. And here's what they said. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're just flattering him, trying to soften him up. Here's the question, verse 22. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So here's, here's the trap. If Jesus answers the question uh, with a yes, yes, it is right for you to pay taxes for us as Jews to pay taxes to a Roman leader, to Caesar. Um, and Yes, you should do that. You should follow the law. You, you should, the law of the land, not our law, but the law of the land that imposed on us from above, the governor and the, on all, up the ranks of authority of Rome, you should pay taxes to Caesar. If he says yes, the people will revolt against Jesus and he'll be toast, he'll be done. Nobody wants to hear from a religious leader, yes, you should, you should do that. Um, he would lose his following and the spies and the teachers of the law would be satisfied. If he says no, no, do not pay taxes to, to Rome, to Caesar. Then they would come and arrest him and put him in jail. He can't be teaching that kind of thing. Either way, they're done with him, right? So they've, they've mapped this out. They've measured it out. They've, these spies are strategic and they've planned this. 
and they're gonna win and Jesus is gonna lose. Here's what happens. Jesus, he saw through their duplicity. They're spies, they're tricking him, they're trying to trap him, their duplicity. But there's more to their duplicity as we'll see in a moment. And he said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Show me a denarius, and here's the question for you. He, asked, he responds with the question, whose image and inscription are on it? And they reach in their pocket, and they take one out, and they say, well, look at it. It's got Caesars on it. That's who it is. So denarius is a coin. Um, it's about a, a day's wage, so it's no small thing. Um, here's kind of what it, it looked like. Um, uh, this is not, uh, not true to scale. This is, this is really large. So uh, this is what we think a, a denarius in the, in the first century uh, looked like. It's, um, it's got an image on the front and the back or heads and tails, and then it's got something written around it. And so this is what they, they would have pulled out. And so Jesus is saying, I, I, I not only see through what you're trying to do, like you're trying to trap me here. Um, and so it's like a, Jesus has almost this like tone and posture of a, of a parent when a, um, maybe a, a child who's just gotten up into the, you know, like preteen or maybe even early teenage years, um, which is when you, you're at your kind of highest peak of, of knowledge and self-awareness. And you start debating with your parents and again, if you're, if, if, if you're a kid or you've never you know, been responsible for a child, maybe this is a, a foreign idea to you. But, it, but it's so fun to watch your own offspring come to this place where they're like, I am 12. I now can outsmart you. And you know, as your parent, you just kind of smirk and smile and listen and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's saying like, I see what you're doing, but you're not only trying to trap me in this like, argument thing, but you aren't even aware of what's going on in your own life. You've got one of these things in your pocket. You're, you're in the system. You're following. You're going along with it already. Your question, you can't even handle or answer your question. You would trap yourselves with it because you've got one in your pocket and you've just held it out and says, here, it's got Caesars on it. Look at it. And so Jesus has already caught them. But here's not just the image of what is on it. It's Caesar's image on his own, which is, which is a whole thing in and of itself. For Caesar to say, I'm going to make some currency. I'm now in power. I've followed my dad and grandpa, and now I'm in power. And so I'm going to make some more currency. We're going to produce some more. Huh. And he puts his face on it, which is, I mean, that's, we can't hardly relate to that. Like if our president put his face on it. I mean, you wait till afterwards and somebody else decides that. You don't decide that. But Caesar is like, no, I'm good with this. I'm going to put my image on it right now and oversee the production of it. And everywhere people will see my image. And one of the reasons he does that is because of what the inscription ends up saying. It's related to what the inscription says. So here's what the inscription says. Yeah, I can't read that. You got to go to the English one. Tiberius Caesar Augustus. Full name. I mean, fantastic name. If you're pregnant and looking for names, like there, you can pull something from in there. Like that's, that's, that's got a lot to work with there. Comma, son of divine Augustus. Not only does this guy put his own image on his own money, but then he claims, I am the son of the divine Augustus or the son of God. That's what he's saying. I'm divine. Roman power, Roman authority said, we 
come from a divine line. The ones that are, Augustus said, you know, back several generations said, I'm not only in power, but I am divine. I am of God. I am different than the rest of you. I am divine. And so then, as it would make sense, his son and his son's sons would be in that line. They would be divine. And so Caesar Augustus is claiming to be the son of God. And now you have somebody else who's claiming to be the son of God, Jesus, standing, talking to his competitors, to his adversaries who are holding out a coin in their own hand that says, this is who Caesar is by image, and this is what Caesar claims about himself, that he's divine. And so then Jesus answers with this. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Give back to Caesar. You've got it in your hand. It says it's his. It's got his name on it. It has his claim. Give it back to him. So in a sense, he's saying, yes, pay taxes. But he's also not really saying that. He's saying it's already his. Give it back to him. Comma. And give to God what is God's. So in this, Jesus masterfully not only answers their question, but turns around and challenges them in the way that they were not prepared to be challenged. Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. It says that on his money. Now, if you're hearing this and you're expecting to get an answer from scripture on how you should handle your taxes, we've missed the point. This is not a, a biblical text about taxes. Their motivation was not to get clarity on taxes. Their motivation for asking and constructing this question was to trap Jesus. This is not about taxes and it's not wise or helpful uh, to, for us to look today and to say, is this, is this a thing about taxes that I should or should not pay taxes? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something far more important. He's had them identify whose image is on the money. And the reason Jesus is doing that is because he wants to come back and say, if Caesar's image is on the money, give it back to Caesar. If God's image is on something else, give that to God. And what is the other thing that has God's image on it? He's looking at them and he's saying, what has God's image on it? You have God's image on you. Scripture tells us at the very beginning that God created us in his image, that each and every one of us have, have God's fingerprint, God's intentionality, God's personal encounter with each and every one of us, that he knows how we were created, he had a hand in it, and he's watched over us every day of our existence since before we came into an existence, before we were conscious and aware, and throughout all of eternity. That Jesus is saying that God's image is on each and every one of us. And he's looking at these challengers and he's saying, you've been unfaithful to God. You haven't given to God what is God's, which is you. And specifically what he's saying to those men at that time was that you have not been acknowledging that the God of the universe who is true and living and working today, you're not acknowledging him with your whole being. You're not, for them, it would have been going to the temple and worshiping him, giving praise to God at the temple in a regular way. You're not living a holy life that demonstrates that you know that you belong to the God of the universe. And you're not present at the temple and sacrificing. He's saying, you're failing to do that. And because you're failing to acknowledge who God is in your own life, 
What goes along with that is you're thus failing to live in the front of everybody else, in view of everyone else, as you having the image of God on you. God's called you and given you instruction on how to do that, and you've failed miserably at it. And so I don't care who you pay taxes to. And in fact, let's make it real simple. It's got his image on it. Do what he says with it. And in the same way, do what God says with your whole self, with all of who you are. These spies were seeking to strategize a way to get around what Jesus was claiming about himself and for their lives. Do I, do you ever do that with Jesus? Do you find a way to kind of nuance and sidestep, massage, hide, strategize so that the claims that Jesus has on me and on you, because we were created in the image of God, that we discard those? I thought of some very obvious ways that we do, and then I thought of some more subtle ways that we do. One of the obvious ways that this is an issue between us and God so often is how we dream and plan and hope for the future. If all of who you are belongs to God, if God's image is on each and every one of us, and he's called us to be his children, his followers, even calls him his servants and slaves, this idea that we are submissive to the God that loves us, that we place our lives under his authority and direction, those are significant words and maybe even uncomfortable words. When it comes to how we think about the future and how we plan for the future and how we envision the future and even the hopes that we allow to take root in our own hearts and minds, do we hold those before God and say, God, you're, you're in control of them? For those of you that are maybe younger and starting out your kind of adult, adulthood or career or educational trajectory post high school, is that all yours? Or does that belong to somebody else? Is there a sense that you come to God and go, well, God, what is it that you want for my life? What is it that you're calling me to? How can you be involved in this decision? If you're headed towards retirement and you've taken on a purely American perspective of how to live those years of your life and you've begun strategizing and planning and crafting that, and God somehow hasn't spoken into that at all, or you've had any way said, God, what do you want for these years that I've followed you for either a few years or maybe for decades? And may, what is it that you have for my life now at these later years of my life when actually I have more to offer than I've ever had before in my life? And you've only planned it and thought about it in a way that will serve you and echo what so much of our culture says you should be doing. And instead says, come, I'm gonna, I'm gonna submit this to you, God. What is it that you have for me? in this season of my life. One that goes along with that closely, but it's a second one, is, is time. God, I've, I've only got a certain amount of hours in my week. And so I'm gonna manage those and navigate those all on my own and not invite God into that at all. Well, no, no, I'll invite him in when he talks about Sabbath because he tells me I don't have to work during those, those hours. So I'll let him speak into that. But all the rest, like I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm covered. I can plan that. Instead of saying, oh God, every moment of my life is yours. What is it that you would have me plan and manage and steward the time that I have to give? Another one, and this is super fun to talk about and comfortable, is our sexuality. 
We, we live in a world now that has gone in a short amount of time, and again, maybe if you're younger, you don't realize the, the speed in which this has happened, but in a very short amount of time, that we get to decide everything for our own bodies. And not only what we experience and do, but to a deeper level of how we think about it and envision it, to where we become the masters, not only of our own identity, orientation, and experience, but to our bodies themselves. And there is so much complexity in that. And that should be paid attention to carefully and pulled apart and examined. But so much of that counteracts the truth of what scripture tells us about who we are and the God who created us. And so to submit our, not just sexuality, but our bodies to the God of the universe who put his fingerprint on us and made us and created us. So we have saying, God, I'm not gonna contour my life to myself alone, but I'm gonna submit that and surrender that to you. And the fourth one is just easy to talk about, is money. Oh wait, maybe I got those reversed. Gosh, we, we have to be responsible for our money, why? Because we have to eat. We have to take it out and go, who, who's, who's image and instruction, inscription? is on our money. Well, we don't actually hold money anymore, so that doesn't work. Like, we don't know what it says on it. Especially if it's crypto, that would, that's a whole other thing. But our money, it's deeply personal to us. And we get stuck in this in-between of going, it's, it's mine, I earned it. It's God's, everything belongs to him. How do we reconcile that? And to begin to bring God into saying, God, you've got full reign on every part of my life. It's all yours. I, before we go on to the next text, I want, I want to invite you to do something with me. Those are the ones that I think are obvious. Our plans, our future, our time, our sexuality, and our money. I think those are just always in front of us and always out there, and we encounter those on a daily, hourly basis. I think there's a whole nother area of our life that is more subtle. And what I'd like to invite you to do with me right now is to, is to actually close your eyes, and I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to just... Be, be working and moving in just the next couple minutes here. And I wanna just read off to you. So you can listen to my voice or you can, you can just sit there and, and, and pray and, and kind of tune out if you wanna do that. But ask the Holy Spirit, what are the more subtle areas of our lives that, that we do not give God access to, that we try to handle on our own, or we don't even think are in view of what God is, is calling us to. So close your eyes and, and maybe listen to these, to this list. Um, one is simply our thoughts. The thoughts that no one else hears, that we don't text, type, write out, journal, that never come out of our minds, that remain in our minds, but our thought world. Scripture says that God calls us to take every thought captive, that our thoughts matter. Are those something that you've said, God, you've got rain on this as well? Our words. The words that we speak with our own mouth, our own tongue, are some of the most powerful things in the world. Are your words, are the things that you say out loud ruled over by God? Do you submit those 
to God? Do you give God's, God what is God's? What does your eyes see? Many of us in this room spend more time than we want to know looking at our phones with our thumbs pretty active, scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. That's not passive. That's not nothing. It matters. Do your eyes and what you view honor God? We all have different attitudes. What does our attitude look like? Not just all the time, but at special moments. This is a complex one, but a deeply important one, but how do you understand your identity? Is it your name? Is it your style? Is it your position, your job? your degree, your resume. Scripture tells us that we are first and foremost created by the God of the universe and that we are his sons and his daughters. When you think of your identity, what is the very first thing that comes to mind? Holy Spirit, merely acknowledging or hearing a word or an aspect of who we are, how we live, is not movement. We ask that you would take whatever it is that you've called to our attention in this moment and that you would not let it fade away to the back of our minds, but that you would keep it in front of us. And not only that you would keep it in front of us, but that you would, that you would bring a sense of hope that more of who we are can be yours. That as Jesus said, give to God what is God's, that we would joyfully and eagerly look forward to more of our lives, more of ourselves becoming God's and joyfully trusting him with more of our life. Would you do that work in us as a church, Holy Spirit? Amen. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Sadducees were another part of religious leaders and they specifically did not believe in the resurrection. That's significant because the resurrection is this spiritual experience of somebody being dead and being alive. Not only did they not believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in the spirit world. So what they did believe in is what was here and now. Interesting. A lot of parallel to our world today. Some have said that the Sadducees were ancient modernists. Our modern mentality today is what is here is all there is. And as if that's some kind of a minor acknowledgement of something, that begins to shape everything of how we see and interact with other human beings and the world as a whole, and not to mention ourselves. When this world is all there is, if there is nothing beyond this, if there's not a power greater than ourselves, it frames everything about how we interact and understand ourselves, other people, and the world. It is foundational to much of how our culture and our nation in particular functions and thinks today is in an undergirding baseline default mindset that is counter to God's word. And so the Sadducees weren't quite all of that, but one of the things is they didn't believe that there was a resurrection. And so their question was, and you heard it read earlier, but their question was, hey, we're going we're gonna to kind of come be the guy that only works on his biceps and shows up and says, I'm going to beat everybody up. They walk in and they say, 
we're going to handle you easily, Jesus. We're going to take you out real easily. So here's a question. Moses, who you follow Jesus and we believe in because we look at the Torah, the Old Testament, we believe Moses. And so Moses said that when a man dies and leaves a widow and no children, his brother is responsible. And this is so weird, but listen to this. His brother is responsible for taking that widow as his own wife and then making some babies. And the reason is, is so that the first brother's line would continue. And the reason, one of the reasons it's important that his line continues, not just for his name and reputation and all that kind of stuff, but that the land that he owns would continue on in his name. And so the family wanted that. And so the brother would take it and it was a commandment in Moses in the Old Testament. And so they said, hey, what do you do in this situation where there's no children? And so then the second brother marries her and there's no children. But in this situation, there's seven brothers and all of them marry her and none of them make any babies and they all die. Now, I mean, if you want like a, I mean, that's, there's somewhere in there, there's a basis for like a reality TV show, I think, but um, that's a whole other genre of shows I wasn't going to mention now. I mentioned, I'm sorry. So anyways, this is a ridiculous, I mean, they hardly thought about this question. They're like, oh, hey, Jesus, what about this question? You're like, what? Like, come on. Like, no, we've got doctors that can help in that kind of thing. And like, there's adoption and I mean, something else could have happened. Like, this is such a ridiculous thing to say, but they posit that in front of other people. So here's Jesus' response. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. That's obvious. He's stating a fact. It's simple. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come, the age to come means the kingdom. The thing that Jesus has been talking about over and over and over. Those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Jesus is saying, uh, here, here's, the, here's the one I want to say. There's no marriage in, you know, after, after this life. I, you know, there's a, there's a few things in here. I mean, again, if you're familiar with scripture, there's a, a lot of pages are real thin. There's a lot of words, small font. There's a lot in here. This is one of the ones I don't like. I don't like this one. And one of the reasons I don't like it is because at this age and stage of my life and hopefully some level of maturity, I really like my wife. Like, I would really like for this to continue. I mean, I have put so much work into this. She would tell you that she's, she's put in more. Um, I, but I've put so much work into this marriage. And, I, and today, we've been married over 25 years. And the... I can genuinely tell you, honestly tell you that, that Abby today for me is, is more amazing. Uh, I respect her more. I'm impressed with her more. Uh, I'm more attracted to her than I was when we started dating at 16 and 17. I, I would like this to continue. I, I, I've put a lot of work into it. It kind of seems like something like, like, and I know I realized when I was a kid and I first learned about heaven, like it was all about Legos for me. If I got to be somewhere for all of eternity, God, please make sure there's Legos there. Now it's, it's please make sure my wife is there. I don't like, I don't like this, this truth. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, there is something about this age to come. I've been talking about the kingdom and I've, I've promised that there is a resurrection and these men don't believe it. And he says, but in the resurrection, your question is silly because it's so, it's so down, it's so low. Let's get our eyes up. The, the kingdom and the life to come and the afterlife, 
you just don't realize how good it is. It's going to be better than all. I mean, we know we live in a broken world. We know we live in a world that we just would change, and there's things that don't work and we don't like. He says, hey, marriage is part of this world. Things are so much better in the world to come that you, you're not even going to be concerned about this. There's a couple that used to sit up here and, um, a number of years ago, and she, uh, she got cancer. And uh, we prayed for her, and maybe some of you will remember this. We prayed for her over and over and over again, prayed for her, and we, we, we experienced what, what was a miracle. It was one of those cancer stories. It was brain cancer. The scans were there. The doctors had put a timeline on it of how long she had to live, and a number of us prayed for her, and she was healed. And the doctors couldn't explain it, and it was clear. And we celebrated it. God worked. A number of years went by, and the cancer came back. And again, we, we prayed for her, and the doctors put a timeline on it. And, and she wasn't healed, and she passed. And he called me, her husband called me the day or the day after that it happened, and this was one of the scriptures that he wanted to talk about. She's gone. Am I... Am I going to be reunited? I, I need to be. I want to be reunited with her. I need to. I, if, in order to live now, I need to know that that's it's going to happen. Oh, you know what? God's got something in store for you. I know you love your wife, and I know in this world there's nothing better than your wife. Your wife is kind of the best thing in this world. But you need to know in the world that you're called to, the world that you're created for, the world that you're promised is so much better that she's gonna be enjoying it right there with you and you're not even gonna know that you're married. That's not gonna transfer into this next thing. There's something so great and so quantitatively different. But you need to trust me in the here and now. And there's little signs and, and, and little glimpses of it in the here and now, but it's gonna be so much better. And the Sadducees said, oh, look, he just outed himself. Look what he just, look at this fool. This fool believes that this stuff is happening. And then they're looking around going like, everybody's, everybody's ditching him, right? No. I said, yeah, we, there's something that rings true in that. There's something that we, even if we don't understand it, we want that. And Jesus over and over and over in all of scripture and the story that God is telling over and over and over, his promises come true. What we see only now in, in a faint image in a mirror it's this faint echo of what's going to come. But this world is not all there is. If you believe it is, you will live and function and treat yourself and others in a certain way. And your hope will be a lowercase, minor level of hope. But if you know and believe Jesus and his promise that the kingdom that is coming will someday fully be realized, and those of us who believe and have been rescued and redeemed by him, forgiven, and restored, will participate in that in the way that we were created for when God put his fingerprint on us and created us in his image. And so we view and treat ourselves and one another in a different way because we know that there is a world to come where all will be made new and all will be set right. Amen. That makes all of the difference in the world. And it's not a concept, it rests on a person. It rests on Jesus. And so when Jesus stands up, and gets introduced in episode one and gets to episode four and says, people are running away from me. He says, no, you need to hear the message because in a couple days, in a few short hours, I will be betrayed. I will go to the cross. 
I will die, I will be buried, and then I will conquer death and resurrection will begin. And what he was a sign of 2,000 years ago, we can look on into the future and know that's what is coming. And so you and I are invited in, not just on Sunday morning, and not just when we are fully rested and fully strengthened, but in every moment in every corner of our life to say, God, this is yours. We want you to have all of who we are. And so with a smile on our face, with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we come and say, God, have this corner of my life. Have this. I don't understand how you're gonna use it all and redeem it all, and I have some fear that it's not gonna go how I want. So strengthen me in that. Help more of my life to be praised to you. When we come to this table that's in front of us, we are saying, Jesus, my hope is in you. It's not in anything else in this world. My hope is in you. So I invite you right now, we're gonna continue to sing and to worship, to come to this table and to take a cup that represents his blood poured out for me and for you, and to take a little, I don't even know what that thing is, but we've got these little squares and these little dishes. It's to represent a, a cracker. It's a, it is a cracker. It's meant to represent Christ's body broken for us. And we take these elements and it tells us the good news that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He lived, died, and was buried in the grave, conquered death, and rose again. And says, in this world, he's alive and at work right now and invites us to join with him in that, in every area of our life, so that we can be signs and indicators to the world around us that there is a hope and there is a savior. And so Jesus, as we come this morning, we confess you as the one who is conquered death, but you've conquered every challenger, every adversary, every competitor, and you've proven true. We want to know you more. We want to be attuned to your voice. We want to be in step with you. We want to be formed by your word. Would you help us to do that even in today as we praise you with our very lives in every corner and every aspect of it?